The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week, the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. This woman moved around a lot as a child, but didn't seem to mind. She was curious, open-minded, and adaptable, and loved the diversity of life. As she grew, she thought she wanted to be a writer and started her first novel at age eight. As an adult, her writing showed up in politics and in local papers. There was something about a story that drew her in, and she found herself wanting to follow the story and be part of the change it created. Her first global opportunity to experience such change on a large scale appeared in the area of public health, and she was consumed with its ability to impact. Today, she walks a path to greatness as the CEO of an organization working to end neglected tropical diseases that affect over 1.5 billion people. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Ellen Angler. Hi, Ellen. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so delighted to be here. And I have to say, I've never heard such a lovely introduction. Thank you. Well, it was all you, girl, all you. So we have limited time together. So let's jump right on in. When you were growing up, your mom would tell you, quote, if an opportunity is not there for you, then go create it. How did these words of encouragement lead to where you are today? Wow. Thank you for asking me about my mom straight off. Uh, She has been a phenomenal influence in my life. And I think she not only said that, but I interpreted that by her actions. So I I remember we moved from the Washington, D.C. area to a really small town in Idaho. It was only about 15,000 people. And I I wanted to work for the school newspaper and there wasn't one, there was, didn't exist one. And she just said, well, let's look around and see what we can do. And that sort of led to me connecting the local to the local paper and becoming a journalist, you know, I think I was age 15 then for, for the town paper. And it just set that pathway to really opening up and thinking, okay, you don't have to work within the structures that exist. Actually part of leadership, I realize now is seeing something that isn't there and figuring out what are the logistics, what are the steps, who do I, what are the the partnerships that I need to make in order to create that new reality? So she was instrumental in that. And I feel like having those examples at at such a young age of what's possible, because I think especially when you're young, you're just like focused on following the rules and what do I need to do next? And the system seems so fixed around you. And I think as we grow in our leadership journey, you realize, okay, we actually have a lot more power and a lot more capacity to envision and then then build the world that we see. And I'm going to dig a little bit deeper on this because I think there's some some real mm-hmm. juicy stuff here because this in this wisdom statement that she mm-hmm. told you through your young life, she really helped remove what could have been self-limiting beliefs for you. Do you agree? I mean, she made it sound like, well, there is no reason to limit yourself because you can just create what's not there. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder where she got that because I'm not sure she always grew up with that message. And there was something about her persistent optimism, even in the face of challenges of moving to new places. I mean, my father was in the Air Force. So it was, you know, every couple of years in a new school or in a new place and having to establish yourself. And she just always managed to see the bright side of that. Like, well, what do we get to learn in this new place? What interesting people are we going to meet? What is the opportunity here? What are you curious about in terms of this new place, this new situation that we can build on that curiosity? And there were just a number of examples of, you know, whether it was that first time being able to work for a newspaper in a small town when there wasn't a school newspaper to, I remember by the time I was a a senior in high school, I was 
I had been uh, writing speeches for the governor and I was working for another state paper and I couldn't fit all the classes together. And I was just pulling my hair out going, I'm working so hard and I just love what I'm doing. And I'm not sure I only really only need these final two classes to finish. And I was asking if maybe I didn't have to go all day to high school. And she was like, well, why follow that rule? You've been breaking rules up to this point and figuring out your own path. And I said, well, I asked the principal and she said, no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And she said, well, the principal has a boss and my mother is in the school system. She's like, why don't you petition the school board? And I was like, oh, I could do that. And I went to, and got letters from the, you know, the editor of the largest paper that I was writing for in the state and letter from the, the governor. And I think at that point, the school board was like, I said, well, the principal had said, well, if I make this exception for you, then I'll have to make the exception for everyone. And the school board, when I presented all this was like, yeah, but you're not everyone. And everyone does have a unique path. And I think that those, even in the most difficult moments, I feel like those, that kind of optimism and creativity and sense of like, you know, a barrier isn't a barrier. It's just a barrier right now. And it's an opportunity to figure out how to, how to build around that. And someone I admire massively is Samantha Power. I've been rereading her book, Education and Idealist, recently. And she always used this term, like, also learn how to be a bureaucratic samurai or a bureaucratic black belt. Like, how do you, even within the system that you're in, which can look daunting, or another good friend of mine uses the term intrapreneur. Like, how do you still be innovative and create things, even in, when it looks like, from a, from a systems perspective, maybe, you, maybe you're not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, what a gift your mom gave you, for sure. Yeah, so I'm gonna you. I'm gonna stay into this space of having people work together and, and how this all unfolds. So if big goals are set, collaboration becomes critical. And you told me you often feel like you have a collaboration gene that can create powerful results. So what have you found are the secrets to creating an environment of collaboration? Well, it is interesting. I think I just love people. And that probably is the journalism background and loving who's what people's stories are. And so like what a what do people uniquely bring to a situation? And what will the additive value of different people around the table bring to solving a large problem? I think that's always been so obvious to me. And I've always found it difficult that people don't see the opportunity to collaborate and bring organizations together or people together. But for me, I think that partly it's just like low ego. Like I really feel like you have to be willing to not get credit in order to get something done. And, you know, in the nonprofit world, sometimes there's like whose who's brand is behind something or, you know, the whole world. And so it's sort of like if you can leave your ego and your logo aside, you can get a lot done. If you don't care about credit, you can get a lot done. And if you can just always be ready to realize the smartest person might not have entered the room yet, like we need to create space to not assume that the people that are around the table are going to be the ones that can answer this, this. And so just I always feel like in the neglected tropical disease space that I work in, these diseases affect a billion people, but there's actually very little global attention, very little, very little funding in this space. Um, yet it's very complicated. Like the diseases are hard to pronounce. There's the super scientific language around everything. And I always feel like, well, we need to still create pathways for people to enter. And one of the donors I brought to a conference not so long ago said, it's very hard because I don't speak NTDs. So part of collaboration is just like translating the language between sectors and just making it I think making it easy, helping people find like their unique contribution to a particular problem in a, in a tangible way, because sometimes the big problem feels just too complex. And so like, what is that piece that people can feel real ownership of? And then once you're, you're in it and you have ownership and start making a difference, I think that that collaboration becomes, it's fun. It's fun. And 
getting to work with people that you wouldn't normally is just a delight and clearly a path toward impact. And obviously you've been very successful with your collaboration, Gene, because you told me a lot of people enjoy working at your company because they have a woman CEO, which I had to chuckle at. I think you said that surprised you as well. <laughs> so one of my colleagues said that recently. I was like, oh, that's why you came? They're like, yeah. I, I do think women have maybe have more of a collaboration gene and using that and bringing that forward. I thought it was so fascinating to see like the COVID statistics that where women are the heads of state, the COVID response has been much more effective. That's surprising, actually. Because <laughs> um, they've gotten people to collaborate together. Which is really yeah, and nice. the capacity to be empathetic and listen and manage a lot of different complex variables at the same time, be attentive to people's needs. I just feel like there's a lot that is really unique in the way that women think and process and, and put things together that enables collaboration. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. It's such a fresh perspective for sure. So saying no used to be a struggle for you but not so much anymore. So how did you get better at saying no so as not to overcommit and burn yourself out? I'd say it's still something I work on. Um, <laughs> so this is a work I'm in progress. I'm totally <laughs> figured that one out, but I have gone through periods of burnout or at least almost burnout. And I think especially if you're working in this area of where your passion and purpose intersect and you're making a big impact you know, to a lot of people's lives, everything feels super urgent. And if you just work harder, then less people will suffer or more people will be treated for diseases that they could go blind from or, you know, be seriously disfigured. So there's just like the sense of opportunity and urgency can pile up. And I, I definitely over the years have gotten to the point where I've just traveled too much, worked too many hours, you know, struggled to maintain balance with friendships or relationships or my own family. And I think that I, just have had the realization, like, I want to do this for my whole life. Like, I'm very lucky to have a lot of longevity in my family. On both of my parents' sides, like, people are living to 100 and beyond. So I think, well, I should just start from the place that I want to live to 100 and assume I can be working into my 90s <laughs> if I'm passionate about something. Well, then I better also be healthy and, and be enjoying life in many ways along the way. And also, I think I realized that if I'm saying yes to everything, that means somebody else might not have the opportunity to do whatever that thing is. So once you get to a point in your career where you're really like, it's not just about me succeeding, it's about mentoring the next generation, about sharing opportunities, then actually a no is really a yes for somebody else. And be super selective. And what, what am I really needed for? And what by me saying yes to it, might I be holding somebody else back? And just that, like the generosity of sharing opportunities, especially once you become a CEO, I feel like everybody wants you to be the one interviewed, speaking on the panel. And I think, wow, there's like a cult of CEO sometimes at conferences that actually, if I can get one of my vice presidents or one of the, my younger colleagues, or just to have that opportunity, I think it really is an opportunity for growth. So I sort of joke that I try not to only have a, a to-do list, but a not to-do list. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'm always trying to work on my not to do list. <laughs> yeah, I have I have one of those lists, Ellen, in my office. Is notes to self and it's things that I want to remind myself don't do again. So <laughs> that's good. What's on your note to self? That's a separate podcast. <laughs> or 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 I'm gonna interview you for that one. <laughs> that's, that sounds fair. <laughs>
All right, so you once were told uh, the following, the worst mistake is trying to boil the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I'd never heard that statement before. So if you would explain what this means and how it applies to how you operate as a CEO. Well, I'll have to give credit to that to board chair of the End Fund is Bill Campbell. And he is just a visionary leader who has run, worked in very large companies, um, always worked in the private sector. And yet he's amazing philanthropist, very, very committed. His whole entire family is committed. And I think that don't boil the ocean is don't try to do too much. There's You have a certain amount of effort and time and ability. And if you're trying to accomplish too much, you're not even going to make an impact in that field. Whereas if you point your effort maybe to a pond instead of an ocean, then you massively can change the temperature in the room. And that in that case, it's the end fund works on five diseases. And we're always asked to do other things. Like, can you add something else? And can you can you work in this other issue area? And I think his mantra has been like, don't boil the ocean. Like, what are we going to be really targeted at? What are we going to be really good at? What are we going to have our most impact at? And actually that clarity and focus and just knowing what to say no to is got a lot of power to it. So I do like that. Let's not boil the ocean because it's very easy to dream big and think of a thousand things that we could do. But if we actually try to do those thousand things, it's hard to accomplish them all. But if you pick a few things that you want to do really well, I think everybody can succeed because over the course of a lifetime, you can you can really get to mastery on a few key things that if you stick with them, it's the journey is is there. Well, and I think that's such brilliant advice, not only for our companies, but also for our personal lives. Mm-hmm. Because I have a little saying in my my home and in my business, just because we can don't mean we should. Yeah. And that yeah. you know, so that's a good way to also to think about keeping yourself focused. Yeah, I think that's really good. (laughs) I think it's a daily practice. I don't know about you, but I just feel like if you're a curious person and you love lots of things and you, especially if you're a learner, I don't know if you've done strength finders, but like learner is, I think, number one for me. And so it's easy to just like your curiosity can take you lots and lots of different places, but just reigning in that energy to if what I want to actually have an impact on. It's so important. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm someone who's sort of obsessed with impact. Like I really want to make a difference in a very clear way in the course of my life. And I feel very lucky that I have in many ways and clarity of focus is so important. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. So leading a world changing company requires you as a leader to stay refreshed and at your best. How do you do this, Ellen? Well, interestingly, I feel like in this year of COVID, I've been better at it. I think that at some points in my career, I've been traveling two or three weeks a month. I mean, I've worked in over 70 countries. I can really be a road warrior and I never have quite figured out how to be a road warrior and stay fit and eat well, <laughs> just and get, getting better and better at it. But I feel like it would, I would go from just workaholism and a, a big trip to come back and reset and really try to take that downtime when I'm back. And I, and I just realized like consistency is so important. And so for me, consistency and learning consistency with all those different practices, whether it's physical health, emotional health, spiritual health, having a base of a few really good friends that are like soul friends that really you are, you're living in transparency and connection and and learning with, you don't need a million friends, but you need people who know you and you know them. So I think that those pillars of family and friendship and faith and whatever that means for you, like I'm been someone who since I was in high school, I had a, na- a neighbor who was a yoga teacher. So I've had a 
more than 30 year practice, yoga practice. And I took a course in college in Indo-Tibetan Buddhism. So it's like 30 years of mindfulness practice and physical practice and not always being super consistent about it. But to me, that's the a base of, yeah, just self-care and self-inquiry and self-inquiry of just knowing your limitations, knowing your own mind, knowing your own your own mental traps, because we can all fall into the mental rhetoric of, I don't, I'd love this bumper sticker that's sort of uh, like, don't believe everything you think. Like, what is the narrative in your own mind that is actually helpful? And what is it that voice that's of self-criticism that you'd be like, okay, you can just go take a nap now. <laughs> and I think that takes time though. It's a little bit the same we were talking about, like saying no, it's the daily practice. Yeah. And you've led perfectly into my next question. So thank you for that. So many women do not recognize what you just described, that their minds lie to them. Mm. I know that you do realize this. So how do you deal with these lies so you don't get pulled in directions that are not good for you personally or professionally? Because those little voices are there just they are chattering away, aren't they? Especially, I think successful women are some of the most, are the hardest on themselves. Mm. And like your inner critic is so cruel. And I think that says like, wow, I would never be that to a friend. Why am I being that to myself? Why am I letting that loom so large that self-doubt or not good enough, not doing enough? No, I, it's just, it's, yeah, I think it's, it's the endless. Of life. It? Let's endless. <laughs> and so to me, it's like separating out what is the mental chatter? Like in you know Buddhism, they sometimes talk about like, what's the monkey mind of your mind just jumping around and thinking a million thoughts? And what is actually that, that place above that, that's the consciousness that's really your deep and truest self, that's your essence that you that you carry forward that is not about words. Like to me, it's it's understanding just presence. And that meditation helps me a lot, inquiry of my own mind. There's a practice, a good friend of mine is a meditation teacher named Sharon Salzberg, and she has helped popularize uh, loving kindness meditation or meta meditation, which is really how to be kind to yourself, how do you give yourself a sense of, may you be healthy, may you be at peace, may you be at ease. And the people that are around you, may they be healthy, may they be at peace, may they be at ease, even your your enemies or people that you're struggling with to the whole world. Like, and just really almost like training your mind for these yeah, positive messages. And I think it's it's also like who you're around. Mm. It's, it's who you're around and who feeds your soul, what you're reading, what you're listening to. I mean, there's that word, I think this is a very 20 word of doom scrolling. Like you can spend all your time reading, reading the bad news. And I just feel like, oh my gosh, only way I'm able to emit positivity and, you know, inspiration in the world and keep myself going in, in a way that can stay optimistic is if I, okay, that I'm not ignoring the news, but I'm also choosing to work from this space of positivity and potential. And there's a great, like Stephen Covey always had this, um, these circles of like, there's your circle of influence and there's your larger circle of concern and a lot of people put so much energy into like the things that they're worried about but they can't actually influence but over the course of your life if you put your energy into where you can influence that circle of influence actually grows over time and that I think is like the journey of a leader as well like you just where can you act where can you influence is that your community your neighbor is that your for me now it's it's such a big scale in terms of the world and the number, you know, our organization helped to provide treatment to over 100 million people last year. It's it's a blessing to be able to impact at that scale. I think if I had been a lot of energy being anxious about the world rather than like, okay, where's my place that I can help do the next best thing? 
I wouldn't have been able to accomplish as much. I'm going to stay on this just for a second. So I'd like for people to really hear what Ellen said about being so careful of what input you allow in to your Mm -hmm. mind and to your space. So when you're around negative people, when you're watching doomsday news, all the things that can suck your energy, getting into negative conversations, mm-hmm. you know, the friend that wants to call and say, oh, did you hear about such and such? And it's all negative news. Be so careful of those. When those come into my space, Ellen, I can feel myself physically change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that is also something really unique that I think women have a intuition and a sensitivity to that energy that we need to listen to. And there's a lot of amazing research now about like the human biofield and like what energy is around us and what measurements of that now. And I just think there is something that's not at all woo-woo about like high vibration versus low Mm -hmm. vibration. Are you around people and influences and information that are helping lift that vibration? And so you can do that for others because it's so much more toxic if you are around, you know, just negativity all the time breeds more negativity. So yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I think that that's something we all need to be extremely sensitive to and also recognize that when we start to get pessimistic or negative or sarcastic, I just, you see all these little like snarky, like it almost becomes an easy default for a coping mechanism or a way of dealing with the world, but actually it has negative consequences on others. And then it's like contagious and everybody's all of a sudden, instead of dealing like just with an open presence and positivity, you've figured out how to manage the world in this kind of negative, sarcastic way that you think, oh, actually, that's that's not going to take you as far as fast or make the shifts in the world that we need to. So I'm excited to hear you, you interested in that and focusing on that and highlighting that in your interviews as well. Yeah. And in that space of what you just said is pointed out something which I know very much to be true, and I've mentioned it before, is emotions are contagious. So be so careful, not only who you have in your company working for you, but be careful who you surround yourself with friends and just what emotions you let get in because you can get caught into it and spiral down into that rabbit hole so quick. You'll say, how did that, how did that happen? Because you'll start to, like you say, start to have negative talk. And And it's not that you're not going to have negative emotions or should be fearful. Because I do feel like there's a place for all emotions in our, in our human existence. Like, one of the things they say in Buddhism is like, you'll have 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Like the sorrows don't go away, right? but can you help manage that? And I do feel like, you know, highly sensitive people are prone to depression or prone to anxiety. And so that's a reality of it, but it's like figuring out, like really realizing you've got to invest in tools, like just keep investing in tools to manage those things, resources, whatever people need in order to realize like there's a stepping stone and recognizing it really early. If you're starting to slip into right. negative self-talk, just like how do you catch it? And cause you'll Bring never, back. you'll never eliminate it totally, but it's, it's a little bit like meditation when you're like, you're trying to follow your breath. You will always start thinking about something else. It's actually the return notice and return notice and return. That is, I think so important and powerful. Yeah, I agree 100%. So yeah, beautiful, beautiful comments. So Ellen, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? Oh my goodness. I still, I have trouble hearing it as a journey to greatness. Um, It's just a journey. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe in that sense, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's a long, it's like a marathon, not a sprint. Even if you have a bad day, like just 
continuing to keep going and doing the next best thing, you know, seek out resources and friendships and colleagues that really help lift you up and realize that, yeah, I, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is like, we overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. So then I think, and we really underestimate what we can do in a lifetime if we have the support of community and especially I love this podcast that you're doing because it's like in the support of other women, um, I feel like is so important to us as women leaders. Yeah, because it can be a lonely space at times for sure. Ellen, you have been a wonderful guest. Thank you for being so open with all this amazing wisdom that you have and for the role that you play in leading such an important organization. Thank you so much. Delighted to be talking to you. So Ellen is another great example of how women are challenging the norm making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman's story unfolds. <music>